Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christy Giving You Saturdays. Today is Saturday, August 22nd, 2015. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. I'm sorry I'm laughing because of something that we were just talking about before I began the recording. There's a... um. A video at the bottom of the front page of Christagenia in a featured video segment section of the website called African Culture, See How They Run. And I was discussing the, um, I, I wouldn't call it a fact, but that the desire on my part that every white person see that video and really understand the beasts that dwell among us, because that's what they are. Tonight, we will continue with our presentation of the Protocols of Satan, which, to a large extent, will consist of the second part of our presentation of the booklet, The World Jewish Conspiracy, and that's exactly what the Protocols are, written by Dr. Dr. Carl Bergmeister and published in 1938. While only history itself and the actions of so many Jews throughout the last 200 years of history can certainly establish the credibility of the so-called Protocols of the Learned Elders of Zion as representing the definite plans of world Jewry for the destruction of the Christian nations. We are presenting this booklet as the central part of our objective to demonstrate that the Jewish attempts to label the protocols as a forgery were in fact fraudulent themselves. Our source booklet is subtitled the Protocols of the Elders of Zion Before the Court in Bern, in Switzerland. And it was written to show the abuse and the miscarriage of justice which resulted as certain nationalist-leaning politicians were using the protocols against the Jews in the elections in Switzerland. And then, in 1933... The so-called Federation of Jewish Communities of Switzerland and the so-called Bern Jewish Community had brought a lawsuit against those politicians in Bern, obtaining favorable results in what was basically a mockery of a trial. Jews throughout the West, and especially in Britain, France, and the United States, then began to even more fervently use the fraudulent evidence produced at Bern to discredit the protocols as an anti-Semitic forgery. They continue to do this, and they do it to this day, in spite of the fact that the trial is discredited and that its results were overturned. Although because the results were overturned for rather innocuous reasons, the treachery of the original trial proceedings was never fully elucidated in the public records. 
as a digression, we have also mentioned an earlier lawsuit by the Jews against Henry Ford for his own publication of the protocols and related materials, which happened in 1927. Perhaps that can be discussed separately at another time, we pray. In his booklet, our author, Dr. Bergmeister, after explaining the burn trial results, discusses some of the evidence which was used in the trial. This evidence consisted primarily of witnesses who had already written articles or writers whose articles were cited by other witnesses, which were published much earlier than the trial itself. As early as 1921, articles attempting to portray the protocols as being fraudulent had appeared in newspapers and other print media which were friendly to the Jews. And later, when the lawsuit was tried, some of the authors of those articles, and in other cases, witnesses merely citing those articles, were presented to the Berne Court as expert witnesses. However, the authors of the original articles in question can all be shown to have either fabricated the statements which they had made in support of their allegations concerning the origin of the protocols, or they had merely repeated such fabricated statements, and they are fully discredited by the historical evidence. One such witness was the former Princess Catherine Rodziwill, who we discussed at length last week, who had given an interview to Jewish reporter Isaac Landman, which was published in a February 1921 issue of the American Hebrew and Jewish Messenger, which is really neither American nor Hebrew, which was evidently reprinted by the New York Times. As it turns out, Rodziwill, who claimed the protocols were the work of Russian intelligence officers, intelligence officers in France, had her dates all wrong and her circumstances were historically impossible. Additionally, she herself had already been convicted of forgery in South Africa in a case connected to Cecil Rhodes and had troubles paying her bills in both New York and London. She was evidently desperate for money of already compromised morals and was paid a generous sum for her story. We left off our last presentation with the historians, the Russian historians, Lev Aronov, Henrik Baron, and Dmitry Zubarev, who in 2009 published an article documenting even further subterfuge connected to the Rodziwill account, which fully vindicated our author, Dr. Bergemeister, in this respect at least. Now, we shall proceed to Bergmeister's second repudiation of a burn witness, which is Armand Duchela. We have read earlier in this book that on the 12th and 13th of May, 1921, the French count Armand Duchela published an article in two parts in the Russian newspaper Dernière Nouvelle in Paris 
the name of the paper in English is Latest News. Now we shall continue with Dr. Bergmeister. The second, quoting the pamphlet, the second in this unholy alliance was Comte Ducheva, who was shameless enough to insist before the court upon the correctness of his article, meaning the article published in Dernier Nouvelle. It was only after the lawsuit was over that, and the writer writes in the first person here, that I succeeded in discovering the whereabouts of Sergei Sergejewich Nihilus, the son of the late S.A. Nihilus, deceased in 1930, and the first publisher of the Protocols. Now, language such as this, where the writer uses the first person, is why I sometimes believe that Bergmeister is only a pseudonym for the Bern trial defense expert, Lieutenant Colonel Ulrich Fleischhauer. However, later in the booklet, Fleischhauer is again referred to in the third person. So perhaps our author was only an investigator in his employ, and who later, after the trial, had continued his investigating. In any event, we see from this language here that he was intimately involved with the case, as where he says it was only after the lawsuit was over. Saying that, he certainly indicates his involvement with the case. And he goes on to write, in a detailed statement, dated March 24, 1936, Nihilus Jr., Sergei Nihilus's son, states that Count Duchela published his report in Dernier Nouvelle, being fully aware that it was untrue, and thus he is a perfidious liar and a slanderer. Nihilus Jr. declared, moreover, and he really isn't a junior because his middle name is different than his father's, the younger Nihilus, declared, moreover, that he himself was the legitimate son of S.A. Nihilus, and of the latter's lifelong friend. This lady, however, was not Madame Natalia Afanasuna, or, as stated by Dushela, a Madame Kamarowski, but Natalia Afanasuna Wolodimirau. Wolodimirau. That's a, if some of these Slavic names are tongue twisters. I'm sorry. What's going on here is that Dushaler is stating um, the wrong mother or spouse for Sergei Nihilus. And the younger Nihilus should certainly know who his mother was. She had never at any time been in touch with Rachkowski. She had, moreover, never had anything to do with the protocols. Nihilus Jr. declared himself prepared to state upon oath that he was himself present in the year 1901. Major Sukotin, also a friend of his father's, had handed the manuscript over to him. He cannot remember having seen at the time the ominous 
ink stain on the front page, which we we have seen Catherine Radziwill and here Count Dushela testify to in order to, I guess, make their lies material, to make them seem like they're true. Further inquiries revealed the fact that Count Dushela, in the year 1921, was chief of propaganda on a staff of the Don Cossack Corps of General Rangel's army, fighting against the Bolsheviks, right? During his employment in this capacity, he was discovered to be acting as a Bolshevik agent, and as such, was arrested and condemned to death for high treason. General Rangel, however, acting under pressure from the French ambassador, quashed the sentence and had to content himself with expelling the treasonable officer from the army. Now, this Duchela, as we will find out later, was a French count who converted to the Russian Orthodox religion went to Russia ostensibly to a monastery to study and ended up in the employ of the general of the Don Cossacks army fighting the Bolsheviks. But he was really a Bolshevik spy all along. The French government came to the rescue of this count who, under the guise of having left France for the Orthodox Church, and under the guise of being friendly, and in the employee even, of Christian forces in Russia, was acting as a Bolshevik agent. Then, several years later, the same count is writing articles as an expert in support of Jewry, attempting to provide evidence that the protocols are a fraud and lying in the process. The French government's support for such a character should not be a surprise since France has been in the hands of the Jews for 200 years, more or less. Here we are going to make a digression to present what the Russian historians Lev Aronov, Henrik Baron, and Dmitry Zubarev wrote concerning Count Dushela in their 2009 article entitled Princess Catherine Radziwill and the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, the Hoax as a Lifestyle. And of course, the hoax was Radziwill's lifestyle, right? Because of the broken English of the automated translation, and I did the best I could, we were compelled to do some editing. Of course, the account is still about Radziwill, but we shall see the content of Dushela's testimony in this, and we shall also see how valid it is that the, um, the statements of Aronov, Baron, and Zubarev, even though they are not um, supportive of the idea of the legitimacy of the protocols, these Russian historians are trying hard to arrive at the truth concerning the, um, the arguments against the protocols as well as in favor of them.
and they're that their writing is quite candid in those regards. And they say, and yet in February 1921, the name of Catherine Radziwill occurs in the press in connection with the protocols. It starts with the material which was prepared for Radziwill by Lewis Marshall, the editor of the American Hebrew. We learned that that was after Marshall had received the letter responding in response, written in response to a letter that Radziwill sent him from the banker, Max Warburg. Published in the form of interviews, excerpts from the document. In the next issue of the magazine, I'm sorry, Felix Warburg, his brother Max was off in Germany. In the next issue of the magazine, there was, a, there was published an interview with a certain Henrietta Hurlbut, a New York lady who Radziwill herself recommended to the magazine as a person who was able to confirm her, her information about the protocols, particularly the most controversial point, the assertion that, while living in Paris, Russian journalist M. Golovinsky showed her the original French document when they were fabricated. Whether there were any contacts by Catherine Radziwill with Mrs. Hurlbut is not known, meaning prior contacts in France. But in a letter to Louis Marshall on February 17, 1921, Radziwill mentions a lady who is able to publicly confirm her testimony. For the letter, the authors refer to the reader, refer to reader to an appendix to the original document in their original book. The, um, the point here being, and, and this actually is in addition to any information that Bergmeister had supplied, after Radziwill had done the first article described by Bergmeister, which was a, um, an interview with the, the Jewish editor of the American Hebrew that she, con that she gave and he conducted. And that was where her first story about the protocols was first published. In the next issue of that paper, she's doing another interview with this woman, this uh, basically unknown woman from New York, this Mrs. Hurlbut, and she does an interview with her, claiming that this woman will back up her testimony. Sensational information provided by Radziwill in those articles came to Europe, published there in a form of an article in the Revue Mondiale. There was a detailed retelling of the U.S. interview with the Jewish Tribune. And in May 1921, the Jewish Tribune, along with the Russian emigre newspaper, Latest News, or the Dernier Nouvelle, published a lengthy article by Orthodox Frenchman, Count, and they call him Alexander, while all of the historical references to him I have found call him Armand, but it is the same person. Perhaps he had a middle name or another name, or they're just, somebody's just confused. 
published a lengthy article by Orthodox Frenchman Count Alexander Duchela, who had shortly before returned to France after 11 years in Russia. It was he who confirmed the existence of the notebook in the French language with a pale purple spot, the ink stain, on the first page. He allegedly saw Sergei Nihilus in 1909 in the Optina. Now, the Optina is a, an Orthodox Russian monastery in a small town southwest of Moscow. The A. Dushela testimony attracted publication in different countries on both sides of the Atlantic. A few months later, statements by Catherine Rodswell and Dushela become much less important in the debate about the protocols. They were nevertheless used in Bern, and they were important in Bern. In the summer of 1921, the British journalist Philip Graves in Constantinople buys from a Russian emigrant, ostensibly a Jew, Mr. H., a publication of the 19th century in which it is easily discovered when compared with the text of the protocols that in the truest sense it is the basis for the creation of an anti-Semitic document. This edition, Dialogue in Hell between Machiavelli and Montesquieu, or alternately titled Machiavelli's Politics in the 19th Century, published in 1864, was directed against the Second Empire of Napoleon III, a political satire by Maurice Jolie, who died in 1878 by his own hand. This direct evidence of the protocols being a forgery, these are the words of Aronov, and company, though it still remains unconvincing for fans of conspiracy theories, was published in the newspaper, The Times, in the issues from the 16th to the 18th of August, 1921, and upstaged the previous performances. And we would say that the Jews just went and got more ammunition. The book by Jolie, the Dialogue in Hell between Machiavelli and Montesquieu, obtained by Philip Graves, seems to have been the death knell for the claims for the legitimacy of the protocols, and we will discuss it further in the near future. For now, Count Duchela remains the focal point of our discussion. In a footnote to the same article, Aronov and his fellows say this about Dushela in a discussion of various writers evaluating the protocols. Researchers excluded, and they're talking about modern-day protocols researchers, and they name some of them, Bernstein, H. Kahn, Dean Nicholas, and others. Researchers excluded Catherine Radziwill from the accounts because of the stories exposing her as a fraud, but left, and in a prominent place, the testimony of Count Duchela. 
and they are inconsistent in their decisions. Dushela, in that part of his story, where he describes the book with the French text, with the ink stain, right? And where there is a discussion about the role of the police department in the creation of the protocols. Catherine Radziwill is directly behind the constructed narrative. If you do not believe her, then on what grounds can you believe him? The proximity of the French count, and these are the words of Aronov and company, who departed from orthodoxy to the reactionary circles, meaning the Jewish Bolsheviks, in the period before the First World War, and they make a note that perhaps this is the reason Dean Nicholas, another commentator on the protocols, called him a crook in his letters to Vera Khan Broido. His stay at the court of Wrangell in the Crimea in 1920, as well as his cooperation with the Soviet foreign ministry from 1922-1930 were no less reprehensible than the scam which involved Radziwill. In other words, these writers are saying that Count Dushela is basically copying elements of his testimony directly from Radziwill and he should be discredited as a fraud just as much as she was discredited as a fraud. So it seems certain that although they themselves, the writers of the Russian article, may doubt the legitimacy of the protocols, Aronov and his colleagues understood that Dushela's testimony was just as unreliable as that of Catherine Rantowil and should be fully discredited. For us, it should be plain that Dushela was a crook, a spy, and a tool for the Jews who were attempting to discredit the protocols. Now, the writers who use the Jolie book can basically go into the same category. They are a different story, and we will address them on another evening. Back to Dr. Bergmeister. Upon this matter, and upon a previous career of the Count, State Councilor Gregor Petrovich Gertschich, it amazes me how many consonants Central and Eastern Europeans can string together consecutively. Formerly in the Judge Advocate General's Department of Rangel's Army, and at present living in Tunis, has furnished exhaustive information in a report dated April 30th, 1936, such information having added importance in view of the fact that Gertschich himself conducted the case against Dushela, in other words, the case where he was being tried by the Cossacks and convicted as a Bolshevik spy. Already at the beginning of June 1936, Dr. Boris Lischitz, a Russian Jew practicing at the bar in Switzerland and acting as counsel to Dushela, was informed of the existence of these declarations, both of which were handed to the court. 
Dushela, however, omitted to bring any action for libel against Sir Guy Nihilus, the junior, the younger Sir Guy Nihilus, who basically said that he was a liar. He apparently considered discretion to be the better part of valor, and that it was preferable in this instance to take the insult that he was a perfidious liar and a slanderer sitting down rather than take the risk of bringing an action against Sir Guy Nihilus, which would expose him to the danger of Nihilus proving his contention true. And of course, Nihilus should have been in, been in a position to prove who his own mother was. So, evidently, Dushela was a slanderer and a liar. Yet a third witness has recently come forward in the person of Andrei Pretovich Rachkowski in Paris. He is the son of State Councillor Rachkowski, whom, incidentally, Dushela falsely described as a general, a rank which he never held. In a written statement dated July 13, 1936, he states that he has searched through all the archives of his late father, which are in his possession. That it is, that is to say, not only through his private correspondence, but also through all drafts of reports sent to the authorities in St. Petersburg, and that nowhere has he been able to detect the smallest trace of his father ever having had anything to do with the protocols. He had, moreover, never had so much as a hint from his father that the protocols were known to him. His father had never been an anti-Semite, and he had had Jews as friends and collaborators. And more particularly, at the time of the publication of the protocols, his secretary was the Jew, M. Goldschmidt. Finally, his father was never acquainted with the fabulous Madame Komorowski, who was supposed to have handed the document over to him. So State Councillor Rachkowski, who is only named by Dushela and the other liars concerning the protocols, evidently had nothing to do with them according to sworn testimony of his own son. And evidently this Komarowski, who Dushela seems to have invented, is only mentioned by Dushela in his articles. And indeed, the name seems to have also been invented, which is why Bergmeister calls her fabulous here. She's a fable. Through the reports of those who might be described as the most telling witnesses in the case, namely Nihilus Jr., Gertschich, and Rechkowski Jr., light has finally been brought to bear upon the forger's den. The statements of the crook and ex-princess Roziwill, now Mrs. K. Danvin, and of the Bolshevist agent and traitor, Count Dushela, are in all essential points, untrue. State Councilor Rachkowski had never on any occasion anything to do with the protocols. He was not, was not called 
I'm sorry, Nihilus' lifelong friend, who according to Duchelo was the go-between who handed him the protocols, was not called Kamarowski, but Wolodimero, and that was the younger Nihilus' true mother, and was never in any kind of contact with Rachkowski. Here we have the name of the mysterious woman whom Nihilus supposedly received his copy of the protocols from as Wolodimero in the account of Dushela, which, which is, according to Nihilus's own son, absolutely untrue. However, there are other versions of this story which should be presented, and for that we will again resort <coughs> to the Russians, Lev Aronov, Henrik Baron, and Dmitry Zubarev, and an August 2007 article entitled, in a crude Google translation, by the history of the protocols of the elders of Zion, why D. Glinka and her letter to M. Alexander III. On April 7, 1902, the famous Russian conservative journalist, and this is another fascinating sub-story inside of the Protocol's narrative, the famous Russian conservative journal, journalist Mikhail Menshikov told the reading public of the existence of a mysterious document. Now, April 7, 1902 would precede Nihilus's publication and all other publications of the Protocols. Quite a thick manuscript, he called it, setting out the conspiracy against the human race. Now, here's the really fascinating part. Compiled by King Solomon and in complete secrecy implemented by Jewish sages for 3,000 years. Now, this is typical of the, um, the Jewish Masonic fable, that a lot of their secrets come down from King Solomon, or that a lot of their secrets come down from Hiram. So, so this um, type of story seems to be historically typical of Jewish Masons, or Jews that are Masons. This acquainted journalist with the document called The Protocols of the Elders of Zion. Some Petersburg woman, not identified by name, described, not without irony, but in sufficient detail, as, and, and there's a word here, elegant apartment, which should probably be some adjective describing a woman. Excellent French, all the signs of a good social circle. Elegant, again. And then there is a sentence of very unclear context where I must insert the words, who is said, because it follows to say, who communicates directly with the world beyond the grave. And of course, these are words being attributed to Mikhail Menshikov, in 1902. According to the lady, the protocols had been stolen from a secret Jewish store in Nice, which is in France, 
and obtained from a French journalist who, with the utmost haste, translated excerpts from the precious documents in Russian. Over 104 years had passed since that moment, quoting Aronov and company, and the literature of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion one of the best-selling political topics of the 20th century, has become truly immense. Examine their sources. Many put forward hypotheses regarding authorship. However, the identity of the lady and the automatic translation often has ladies, but it's referring to a single person. The identity of the lady who allegedly transferred the protocols into Russian and brought them to Russia is still a mystery. And they have a parenthetical statement which says that the French original has yet to be discovered and for a hundred years its existence has been questioned. And they go on to say one of the first publishers of the protocols, S.A. Nihilus, at first said only that they were stolen by a woman, and 12 years later added that the protocols were obtained from a lady permanently residing abroad, that this lady, and, and then there's a portion of the automated translation which was very difficult to decipher, and we will skip part of it, only to say that another woman a. N. Sukatina in Tula is named in connection with the mysterious woman. Now, Sukatina is evidently related to that Sukotin from whom Nihilus says he had obtained the protocols, but Sukatina is not the mysterious woman. And it says, in the words of the same Sukatina, Nihilus said that this lady passed on a copy of the manuscript to Sipiagin. In other words, Nihilus learned this, or, or, or our investigators learned this from Sukatina. The then Minister of Internal Affairs, upon his return from abroad, so Nihilus said that the lady, the mysterious lady, passed a copy of the manuscript of the protocols to the Russian, the czarist at the time, Minister of Internal Affairs named Sipiankin. And then Aronov and company makes, make another parenthetical remark, and they say, curiously, the Minister of Internal Affairs of the Russian Empire, D.S. Sipiankin, was killed April 2nd, 1902, five days before the appearance of the press article by Menshikov announcing the existence of the protocols. Unlike Menshikov, Nihilus always maintained that he had never seen the lady and that he did not even know her name. He did not name the lady and the former neighbor of the estate of Sukotina in Tula, named F.P. Stepanov, once in exile in Yugoslavia in 1927 by the Bolsheviks, 
he left a notarized certificate that Sukhotin handed him the manuscript of the protocols and cited as the source of all the manuscripts the same unnamed lady living in Paris. Unlike Nihilus, who said that he forgot the name of the lady, Stepanov claimed that Sukhotin did not mention her name, and that's fine. The two different testimonies do not clash, because one does not mean that the other was lying. Sukhotin never told Stepanov the name. He told Nihilus the name. Evidently, Nihilus said, and he consistently said that he forgot the name. He gave that testimony over several decades until he died. Our writers say, thus, for 25 years, from 1902 to 1927, there are three written witnesses or evidences of the lady who had brought the protocols to Russia. And only one witness, Menshikov, claimed to have seen a lady and to know her name. The other two, Stepanov and Nihilus, had never seen the lady and did not know her name or did not remember. And only another mysterious lady, an active promoter of the protocols, writing under the pseudonym of Leslie Fry, and here Aronov and his fellows are referring to the book, Waters Flowing Eastward, first published this, the evidence of Stepanov, and then gave the name of the mysterious translator of the protocols. She claimed, and of course this um, Leslie Fry is really the... American woman who was married to a Russian nobleman, and her name was Pekita de Shishmarov, if I'm not mistaken, her real name. She claimed that it was the daughter of a Russian general, Mademoiselle Justine Glinka. According to the version of Fry, Glinka, in 1884 in Paris, bought the French copy of the protocols from a Jew named Joseph Shapiro, translated the text into Russian, and transferred it together with the original to Gendarmerie General Orzhezkomu, or something like that. I apologize, or Jebskomu is probably more accurate. Another copy of the translation Glinka gave to Sukhotin when she returned to her state in Oral. And they're referring to, um, I believe that's page 93 of Waters Flowing Eastward. Aronov and his colleagues go on in that article to present an exhaustive study concerning the validity of this information concerning Justine Glinka, who is sometimes called Juliana Glinka by other writers, in debate of whether or not she really had anything to do with the protocols. Perhaps we shall return to it 
again in the future. However, at this point, it is quite peripheral to our discussion. It's not really important, since her name did not arise in Bern, and knowing it or not doesn't discredit the witnesses at Bern any more than they've already been discredited. They've definitely been discredited, there's no doubt. At least um, Dushela and those who shared the testimony of Radziwill or the supposed evidence that Radziwill had um, had offered in her interviews. Apart from this question, returning to Dr. Birdmeister, the research into the origins of the protocols must be carried out to its very last detail. It would be particularly important to find out from whom Major Sukhotin received the protocols in 1895 or at an earlier date, the earliest date that was um, recorded that he possessed them was demonstrated by Bergemeister earlier to have been 1895. Here we find ourselves at a dead end, which is all the more difficult to overcome, as the supposedly non-Jewish Soviet state, supposedly non-Jewish, puts difficulties in the way of all inquiries which are likely to prove disadvantageous to the Jews. And I would say that they still do that. That is still, even under Putin, that is still their policy. Anti-Semitism, even under Putin, is against the law in Russia to this day. The Soviets, supposedly non-Jewish, and we have documentary evidence posted at Christogenia. The Bolsheviks and, and the Soviets after that, Stalin was really just another Bolshevik of a slightly different flavor. They closed the churches. They used them for theaters. They used them for warehouses. They used them for whatever else they could find useful for anything but churches. And they left the synagogues absolutely unmolested from 1917 all the way through to today. I mean, the churches were eventually reopened in the 1970s when the um, when the Germans occupied much of the Ukraine and Western Russia, they closed the synagogues and reopened the churches. That didn't last long, but that's what they did. Back to Bergemeister. Here we find ourselves at a dead end, which is all the more difficult to overcome as the supposedly non-Jewish Soviet state puts difficulties in the way of all inquiries which are likely to prove disadvantageous to the Jews. Moreover, the former member of the Duma, Colonel Baron B. Engelhardt, 
in a communication from Riga, dated the dated April the second, nineteen thirty-five, states that in the spring of nineteen seventeen, immediately after the formation of the provisional government by the Freemason Prince Levo, it became the principal care of that government to remove from the Ministry of Home Affairs and from the police department all confidential documents having relation either to Jewry or to the protocols. Prince Levo was born in Germany and is said to have descended from the Viking princes of Yaroslav. His family moved home to Tula in Russia after his birth. During the Japanese, the Russo-Japanese War, he organized relief work in the East. He was born in the 1860s, I believe. And in 1905, he joined the Liberal Constitutional Democratic Party. He was elected to the Duma, to the first Duma, in 1906, and was nominated for a position in the ministry, in the cabinet. During the first Russian Revolution and the abdication of Nicholas II, Emperor of Russia, Lvov was made the head of the provisional government founded by the Duma in March of 1917. He resigned in July 1917 in favor of Alexander Kerensky, of course, it's always referred to as the Kerensky government. For a longer time, at least a few weeks longer, it was the Levo government. But of course, the Bolshevik Re Revolution ended Kerensky's government in October. Levo was arrested when the Bolsheviks seized power later that year. He supposedly escaped and settled in Paris, where he died. In 1925. We don't have any more details on LeBeau. He was obviously not very important, but he was one of the German sellouts and compromisers with the Jews. That's the way I look at both the people that sided with the Democrats in Russia in 1905-1906 and in 1917. They were just selling out Russia to the Jews. Back to Bergmeister. All files and documents of a nature disagreeable to Jewry were collected and under orders from Prince Laveau handed over against written receipt to the Jewish politician Winnower, a member of a Masonically influenced Miljuko party or Milyuko party. From this time onwards, the material in question completely disappeared. Perhaps that's Milyukov party. The expert, loosely, the plaintiff's expert at the burn trial, the expert loosely did, it is true, succeed through the intermediary of the Jewish solicitor Tagger in Moscow in borrowing from the Soviet government documents for the composition of his expertise. These, however, in spite of desperate efforts on the part of Loosely 
to nail down Ratchkowski as the forger of the protocols do not afford the smallest ground for this assumption. Moreover, apart from this, these documents, of which Loosely was proud as he was of the forgeries of Roswell and of Dushela, contain nothing whatever relating to the authorship of the protocols. The fact that the authorship and the time of the composition of this document still remain a mystery does not justify the assumption that the protocols are an anti-Semitic forgery, and even less when the fact is taken into account that their contents are in complete and accurate accord with other Jewish writings, and they certainly are. We could see that even more clearly and with much greater magnitude a hundred years later or in Bergmeister's case, perhaps 75 years later. As also with the political occurrences of our time, and Henry Ford felt the same way 15 years before Bergmeister, this document has been in existence for many decades, and its validity has never yet been legally disproved. As long, however, as a forgery has not been disproved, this document may be looked upon as genuine, for it is the inauthenticity of a document which must be proved by those who would attack it, and not its authenticity by those who would defend it. The Byrne lawsuit has not cleared up the situation in any way, for all of the theses which have been brought to prove forgery, there is not one that will hold water. One and all the rest upon a gross, one and all rest upon a gross perversion of the facts. Only the guilty and those who are afraid of the truth make use of such methods as were used in burn. You know, in, in my opinion, the Jews suing Swiss politicians for employing the protocols is kind of like ticks suing a dog for wearing tick repellent. And the protocols are like a flea collar that are supposed to keep the fleas off of the dog's ass. But in our case, the dog is too stupid to realize that. The dog being white people collectively. When you look at the ticks sucking your blood, you cannot deny that the ticks exist. And you can't argue with the ticks over the legality of using tick repellent. That's what this is all about. The protocols are an awareness mechanism. They are basically tick repellent, and the ticks are suing the dog because the dog wants to use tick repellent. That's what this all boils down to. It is ridiculous, but this is white history. We must express disappointment that the article by Philip Graves printed in three parts in the London Times in August of 1921, and which made use of this um, miraculously discovered copy 
of the Jolie book, which just popped out of Turkey at just the right time, made use of the Jolie book in an attempt to discredit the protocols. We must express disappointment that this was not addressed here, although Dr. Bergmeister had mentioned it earlier in this booklet. God willing, we will address the Philip Graves article at length and the Jolie book at greater length in a weeks to come. There are two reasonable avenues by which to upset the supposition that Jolie's book is sufficient evidence which discredits the authenticity of the protocols. The first is this. It seems that the only copy of the Jolie book which exists, and I haven't looked into this fully, was obtained from a Jew, a Russian Jew, in Turkey at a wonderfully convenient time for Jewry as the protocols are being published in America, Britain, and France. The second avenue is this. Jolie himself worked inside the French government for over 10 years, and he was a mason in France. He was a minister. He, he, he worked in the State Department in France, in the, in the Ministry of State. So he was a lawyer working for the government, and it's the equivalent of somebody working for the State Department here in America who's a lawyer in Washington. He's at, in, in a high place with a lot of connections. He's a Mason. I've seen reports that he's a Jew. I have not yet substantiated it, that he's a Jew with a changed name. I haven't been able to verify that, but it's immaterial. He's a Mason in France, in government. He's a Jew between the ears, with no doubt. In that position, he may have simply used the same sources for his book from which the protocols themselves were later taken. That's the most plausible explanation of why they are so similar in some places, but hardly in many places. The next portion of our booklet is based on the testimony of certain Jews. These Jews seem to be the self-hating variety, which we have seen in the likes of Howard Rosenthal, Myron Fagan, Nathaniel Katner, Henry Macau, and other tattletale Jews of recent times, who always seem to have their own diabolical agenda. When we presented Martin Luther's On the Jews and Their Lies, we saw that the phenomenon of the tattletale, self-hating Jew has existed since as early as 13th century France, where the converso Jew, Nicholas Donin, had exposed the writings of the Talmud before Pope Gregory IX and engaged in the famous disputation of Paris. Even earlier, another supposedly converted Jew named Theobald 
explained ritual murder to the English authorities upon the discovery of the crucified and tortured body of young William of Norwich. So there's a, there's a self-hating Jew from just about a thousand years ago. Nicholas Donin is a self-hating Jew from 700 years ago. So the, the um, phenomenon of the self-hating Jew is nothing new. We do not advocate pursuing the testimony of Jews, not at all. However, in certain circumstances, and when it is corroborated by established facts, it may be useful. Since this is part of the booklet we have endeavored to present, and also a part of the historical record concerning the protocols, we will proceed and present what Dr. Bergmeister has written. Just imagine the irony that evil Nazis, like Dr. Bergmeister, are employing the testimony of Jews, and that Jews cooperated with the anti-Semitic proponents of the protocols. So there is a minor usefulness here. Due to the nature of what follows, we will not have too many comments of our own, but only need to present what Dr. Bergmeister has written. And this is part five of his booklet, and it's subtitled, Three Orthodox Jews Stand for the Authenticity of the Protocols. If up till now I have been principally concerned in a refutation of the assertions made by the opposing side, and have been able to show that Jewry have not been in a position to bring any valid evidence in support of forgery, I will now discuss a few important cases which go to show the authenticity of the protocols. In this connection, I will quote the declarations of three Orthodox Jews. About the year 1901, in the small Polish city of Schocken, now called Skokie, there lived Rudolf Fleischmann, an assistant rabbi and a slaughterer by trade. With this person, the local public prosecutor, ostensibly a Christian, M. Moskowitz, entered into friendly relations. Fleischmann, whose honor had suffered serious injury at the hands of the chief rabbi, Dr. Welchenfeld, in that the later had assaulted his fiancée, I wonder how, complained bitterly to his Christian friend and related to him much in regard to the anti-Christian writings of the Jews. In this fashion, they came to speak about the protocols of the elders of Zion, which at the time were already known in Russia. As Moskowitz had asserted in his writing, Fleischmann assured him that the protocols really did exist and that they were no forgery. Moreover, that they were positively of Jewish origin. He further laid it on him as a duty to warn his Christian co-religionists and co-citizens of the danger. So we have this not on the testimony of the Jews, 
but this is testimony about Jews from a supposedly Christian Polish prosecutor. I say supposedly because I don't, it, it's hard to imagine any prosecutor for a modern government really being a Christian. I haven't found one. Moskowitz relates a second instance also. In the year 1906, he put the question directly to the well-known Rabbi Grunfeld of Swartzids in Poland as to whether the protocols were genuine or not. Thereupon, Grunfeld gave him the following characteristically Jewish answer. In other words, he doesn't answer. My dear Herr Noskowitz, you are too curious and want to know too much. We are not permitted to talk about these things. I am not allowed to say anything, and you are not supposed to know anything. So this Jewish rabbi was kind of like a proto-Don Corleone or something. That, that's where the mafia mentality comes from. For God's sake, be careful, or you will be putting your life in danger. We are in possession of a further statement from the Russian Captain George. Our readers will understand that we cannot give his real name, as we otherwise might endanger the lives of his relatives in Soviet Russia. In February 1924, in Yugoslavia, he visited the Jew, Soeliyi, Soeliyi Konstanovich Efron who was a refugee from Soviet Russia. Efron, in his early days, had been a rabbi in Vilna. He went, however, over to the Greek Orthodox Church and became a mining engineer in St. Petersburg. He was, moreover, an author and wrote under the nom de plume of Litwin. He was the editor of the monarchist newspaper, The Light, and was a contributor to The Messenger. He was also author of the drama going under the name of The Smugglers, which contains much severe criticism of Jewry. In consequence of this, he was brutally assaulted by some Jews, and his life being threatened. When the Bolshevist Revolution broke out, he had to fly from his country arriving finally in Serbia, where he found asylum in a cloister in the neighborhood of Pekowitz in the district of Shabbats. It was there that he died in the year 1926. When, on a certain occasion, Captain George questioned him on the subject of the genuineness of the protocols, Efron declared with emphasis that he had for long been well acquainted with their contents, indeed, for many years before they were ever published in the Christian press. Efron's words were written down by Captain George, who made sure of the matter by obtaining a sworn statement regarding his bona fides from the Archpriest of the Russian Church in Paris in the month of October 1928. Both written declarations, namely that of the public prosecutor Noskowitz and that of Captain George, were included by Lieutenant Colonel Fleischauer 
in the expert report which he had rendered to the court in Bern. Like all other evidence offered by Fleischauer, however, these witnesses were completely disregarded by the Marxist judge. In the case of Efron, the case of Efron interested me, our writer is in the first person again, and I therefore got into touch with different colonies of Russian emigres with a view to finding people who had been acquainted with him. The results were altogether beyond my expectations. I discovered a Russian who had formerly fought in Rangel's army, Wassily S., his real name is also concealed. Now, perhaps it was a mistake or perhaps it's a pseudonym, but further on in this booklet, in this section, he is identified as Wassily Smirnov, who had made friends with Ephron at Pekowitz and who actually handed me a short treatise upon the protocols in the Russian language written by Ephron himself. It is actually the concept of a letter addressed by Ephron in the year 1921 to the Russian emigrant paper edited by Bertzu in Paris, La Cause Commune. I won't try to pronounce the Russian title. Ephron had about this time read an article in his paper in which a writer by the name of A.J. Kuprin, ostensibly another Christian, questioned the genuineness of the protocols and pretended to show that they were a forgery on the assumption that the Jews were incapable of producing an anti-Christian work of this description. The indignant Ephron thereupon wrote the following letter to the editor. In my quiet cloister, I am living in a Serbian monastery. It is seldom that I see a newspaper. The other day, however, a copy of La Cause Commune came into my hand, and I had read in it a chiletan and that's a feature article, so I will just call it an article here, by A.J. Kuprin, entitled Guslitsky Fabrication, in reference to a monastery. Guslitsky is a reference to a monastery in Korovskoy, a town about 60 miles east of Moscow. In this article, Monsieur Kuprin discusses the Zionist protocols of Nihilus, and the writer, Kuprin, is basically asserting in the title that Nihilus had fabricated the protocols in the monastery at Guslitsky. And he describes, to the benefit of the reader, the impressions which he gets from the perusal of this book. Whatever conclusion he comes to in this instance in regard to the genuineness of the protocols, 
is a matter of little or no interest to me, meaning to Bergmeister, for in a matter under consideration, or I'm sorry, to Ephron, Monsieur Couprin cannot be considered an authority in any sense of the word. In spite of the above, however, my attention was drawn to certain statements in this article. Monsieur Couprin writes, what surprises one in the protocols is this downright, blind, stupid, one might say, uniform hate against Christianity, which only an unimaginative and commonplace Jew bather, writing in accordance with his feelings against the Jews, could ascribe to the elders of Zion. Every word of these protocols breathes blood, revenge, slavery, destruction, and ruin. One does not only feel the deadly and poisonous power of the word, but also the paralyzing commonplace. When the diplomats of two different countries set out to ravish a portion of a third, or when two financiers set about plucking some trustful pigeons, they do not usually call things by their proper names, but are wont to conceal the hard reality with kindly words and tasteful forms. These 70 elders, the highest authority of an intelligent people, and no doubt themselves also highly cultivated persons, would, it is clear, be ashamed of such a primitive and pogrom-like brutality as is attributed to them in the protocols. And Couprin, supposedly a Christian, seems to know a lot about Jewry. The above quotation from the article of this well-meaning author breathes passionate resentment against the protocols, and the Christian conscience of the writer cannot reconcile itself to the wickedness and the hate against Christianity with which the protocols are permeated, and that is also the attitude of the average Judeo-Christian today. He is unable, therefore, to acknowledge that they are genuine, and out of goodness of heart, he cannot recognize them. That sounds like a Judeo-Christian, all right. This must be it. It is difficult to come to terms with life when such wickedness and such hate are found to exist. To an author brought up and educated in Christian ethics, they may seem impossible and an absurdity, but nevertheless, this wickedness and this hatred of Christianity among the chosen people, and of course, even a Jew turned against Jews, retains the chosen people myth, have both existed in the past and exist up to the present day. I propose to the well-meaning author that he communicate with Monsieur Pasmanic and ask him to be kind enough to translate the following words taken from the prayer, which every Jew is bound to repeat thrice daily. I take it that Monsieur Pasmanic, evidently a rabbi in Paris, that Ephron wants to refer this Christian author to, I take it that Monsieur Pasmanic is cognizant of ancient Hebrew and is also familiar with the prayers. 
and he repeats these transliterated Yiddish words, Shaketz, Tishaksenu, Save, Tisawenu, Ki, Kerem, U. This seems to mean something along the lines of, you will to the utmost abhor it, you should feel the ultimate disgust for it, for it is something cursed, shame, which is a prayer spoken by Jews in reference to the cross of Christ. Below, further on, the original author of the letter will translate it for us. These words, I repeat, and I hope that Monsieur Pasmanic will confirm what I say, are repeated three times a day by every Jew in his prayers. Now, if Monsieur Pasmanic will accurately translate the words of the Hebrew prayer, and Monsieur Kuprin, the author of the article, comes to hear of their meaning, he will surely understand that as a Christian and as a man of honor, he is bound publicly to withdraw what he has said in the above-quoted statement, a statement clearly dictated by goodness of heart and from feelings of Christian charity and in no way attributable to any knowledge of Judaism or of Jewish ethics. P.S. If in the course of the next 15 days, Monsieur Pasmanic does not communicate the meaning of the prayer to A.I. Kuprin, I will print a translation of it in the new newspaper, the name of a Russian newspaper which Efron was editing at the time, as much for his own edification as for the edification of other writers similarly placed who have erred in all good faith. Upon Ephron's Russian concept, the following further notes are to be found, and also a translation of the Hebrew text. And this is Bergmeister supplying further writing, supposedly, of this Jew, Ephron. And it says... Up to the 60s of the previous century, the 1860s, these words were printed in the Hebrew prayer books. At the beginning of the 60s, however, they were forbidden by the Russian censorship, which naturally did not prevent the Jews then, as it does not prevent them now, from repeating them three times a day. And now he's interpreting the words of the prayer. Shaketz to Shakzenu, thou shalt utterly detest it, the cross of Christ. Save to Sawenu, thou shalt utterly abhor it. Ki karam, for it is a cursed thing. Who is fee? For this curse, the Jews make use of Deuteronomy 7.26. That's a parenthetical remark. The passage has nothing to do with Christ. But the Jews certainly cannot make use of it appropriately, as the Jews themselves are accursed by the God of the Bible. Of course, they're just too arrogant to know it. Bertzu never published this letter 
of the Russian of the Russian paper. He also the, the new newspaper is the name in English. He also suppressed it in his evidence before the court in Bern. Whether Efron also sent it to the new newspaper, I'm sorry, Bertsu is the um, the editor of the Russian language paper in Paris that Efron was writing to in response to the article by Kuprin. So Bertsu never published it in Paris, and he suppressed it in his evidence before the court in Bern. Bertsu is the um, editor of the Dernier Nouvelle, which also means new, so I'm confused. Whether Efron also sent it to the Russian new newspaper, which he was editing, as he intended, is not known. It is altogether characteristic of Efron's attitude to the protocols that it was just an article which pretended to prove them a forgery, which he took as an occasion for repudiating any such theory. He does not express any direct opinion as to their authenticity, but it is sufficient that he denies to Kuprin the right to express any opinion on the matter upon the grounds that he does not understand the subject and that he energetically repudiates Kuprin's attempt to establish a forgery. His attitude comes even more clearly to light in the following report compiled by Wassily Smirnov, called Wassily S. earlier in this booklet, in the presence of two witnesses on the 15th of December, 1836. And Wassily Smirnov said, after my arrival in Yugoslavia in the year 1921, in my capacity of an officer in General Rangel's army, General Rangel, who was fighting for the Don Cossacks, I came across a group of Russian emigrants in the village of Petkowitz, in the district of Shabbats, where it had been suggested that I should live. In the vicinity of this village, the Serbian monastery of St. Petko is to be found. As I heard shortly afterwards, in this monastery lived Savali Konstantinovich Efron, who had found a home there. As age and infirmity, he was at the time 72, prevented him from doing any active work. Efron had come there on the recommendation of Bishop Michael of Shabbats, in whose diocese this cloister was situated. Bishop Michael had, in former times, been the head of a Serbian religious house in Moscow. It was at this time that I first began to receive the Russian emigrant paper edited by Bertzu in Paris, La Cause Commune, three copies of which were forwarded to me from Paris with a view to its distribution among the Russian emigrants. Efron came to hear that I was receiving the La Cause Commune and sent me a message to one of the Russians asking me to visit him and saying that he would much like to see the paper in question. 
I visited him in the course of the next few days and began also to send him the paper. Thus it was that my acquaintance with Ephron began, and that establishes how Ephron had seen the article by Couprin in the paper, as we, we are about to find out. Later, <clears throat> in number 440 of the above periodical, an article written by Couprin appeared under the title Guslitsky Fabrication, in which he attacked the author of the protocols for the blind and bloodthirsty hate against Christianity exhibited in them. Kuprin further expressed doubts regarding the capability of the Jews to express such sentiments. What he meant was that only the most ordinary type of Jew-baiter could ascribe such sentiments to them. <coughs> Excuse me. This attitude of Kuprin to the protocols disturbed Ephron very much, and on the occasion of my next visit, he started to relate to me the opinion which he had formed of the article in question. He had a reply to Kuprin already written, and addressed to the editor of La Cause Commune, which he asked me to dispatch. In the course of a further conversation regarding this article, he became very indignant about Kuprin's ignorance of the theme that he had handled. He held him to be completely incompetent to express any opinion on the nature of the case. In other words, what the hell does a Christian know about Jews? In most cases, absolutely nothing. On the occasion of this conversation, Ephron handed me the concept of the letter he had written to Couprin with the words, Take it, my dear friend, it may perhaps be of use to you some day. In connection with this article of Couprin's, there began between us the most open-hearted conversations, in the course of which he told me what he knew regarding the Zenus Protocols. In view of the fact that it is such a long time ago, I cannot now remember everything that he said. But one or two leading points which have graven themselves on my memory, I will now quote in inverted commas, making use to the best of my recollection of Efron's own words. He asked me once whether I had read the protocols through, and on my replying in the affirmative, he began to say that the protocols of the elders of Zion were in point of fact not, <coughs> not the original protocols at all. Excuse me, but a compressed extract of the same. When he said to me that he was very much troubled in his conscience as to whether he should reveal the secret of their origin or not, for he did not know whether in doing so he would be doing more harm than good. I cannot here remember the exact course of our conversation. But as far as I know, I had put to him a question regarding the origin and the existence of the original protocols. In answer, he excitedly caught hold of me by the lapel of my coat and said literally, My dear friend, in the matter of the origin and of the existence of the original protocols, there are only ten men in the entire world who know, and one of them 
is your servant. In saying these words, he touched his breast with his forefinger and added, My dear friend, this was his favorite mode of address where I was concerned. If you come to me often enough, it is just possible that I may bring myself to reveal the secret to you. It was a short time after this that a position was offered me in Belgrade, and to my great regret, I was compelled to part with him for good. It was in this fashion that he took the secret of the protocols with him to the grave. He died two to three years after my departure, as I afterwards heard. From what he told me, I learned that he was a Jew, and that he went over to the Orthodox Church in Russia. After his conversion, he was a missionary in Central Asia and was also a correspondent of the Academy of Science. He was, moreover, editor of the paper, Historical Herald. He had a son who had been an officer in the Russian army. I have attached the aforementioned concept of Efron's letter to Kuprin here, too. The above statements, I am at all times ready to confirm with an oath. Signed, Wassily Smirnov, supposedly a pseudonym. Former Commandment, AM Department, Propaganda Section, South Russian Forces, which were the Don Cossacks, broke off into the Don Cossacks fighting against the Bolsheviks. As a result of further investigation, I was fortunate enough to find yet another Russian who over a period of years had been personally acquainted with Efron. This was Wassily Mikhailovich Kuroskin, who lived at Petkowitz in Yugoslavia and who, at the time of Efron's residence there, was the business administrator of the monastery in the town. Kuroskin has given the following written declaration. During the period between June 24th and November, I'm sorry, June 1924 and November 1929, I was resident at the cloister of St. Petka in the province of Shabbats in Yugoslavia to the different duties which the prior of this religious house, the monk, Aristarch, laid upon me belonged that of conducting the business affairs of the cloister. I consequently became familiar with the archives of the cloister and with all matters pertaining to persons it contained. As regards Soweli Konstanovich Efron, I associated with him from the moment of his arrival in the monastery up to the time of his decease. According to the letter of recommendation from Bishop Michael of Shabbats, which was entered in our files under number 191, Ephron arrived at the cloister on June 7, 1921. His decease took place on the night of the 23rd of June, 1925. He died alone and without witnesses. All his personal belongings, his notes and his books were sent by General Tolstov, who was also resident in the cloister, to the office of the agent for Russian refugees in Belgrade, 
at that time, one Paleologue. I had often had talks with Detron. He used to tell me about his past and used to communicate to me his thoughts upon different matters, and among them upon the Jewish question. I remember that he told me that he completed his rabbinical training at Vilna, and that afterwards he became a rabbi. Imagine that. He said that after he had came to know of a certain secret law among the Jews, he did not say which, in which the hatred of humanity which it propounds had impressed him most, he decided to break with Jewry. After he had broken with Jewry, he entered the School of Mines in St. Petersburg and qualified there. Afterwards, he took to a literary career. He became a collaborator on the new newspaper where he said he would publish his letter to Kuprin. Editor of Komarov's newspaper, Light, and of the Historical Herald, and secretary of the Slavonic Committee, so the Jew qualifies as a Slav, I guess, once he converts to orthodoxy. It was during the time that he was on this committee that he became acquainted with the prior of the Serbian monastery in Moscow, the Archimandrite Michael, who afterwards, when Bishop of Shabbat, arranged for his reception into the cloister of St. Paraskua or Pet Petka. Efron told me that he had two sons who had remained in Soviet Russia and who occasionally sent him money. I remember that on the day of his death, $50, dollars being the unit, I guess, which was translated, $50 arrived from one of his sons. On one occasion, Efron made me a present of Nihilus's book on the Zenus Protocols. I remember that on this occasion, he said to me, they, the protocols, are an actual fact and every word of them is true. In his conversations on the subject of Jewry, he asserted with all emphasis that the Jews have secret books which they show to nobody but to the initiated. Three or four months before his death, the author, Rodinov, wrote to him from Mostar, which is apparently a town in what is today Bosnia, and Herzegovina, urging him to reveal the secrets of Jewry. S.K. Efron did not, however, wish to do this, as he was awaiting the visit of the Metropolitan Antonius, to whom he wished to reveal everything concerning the Jews. In his letters to Efron, the Metropolitan Antonius promised him that he would visit the cloister in company with General Nechwaladau, who was coming from Paris for the purpose. In the last few days, as he felt death approaching, Efron often gave expression for his distress at the Metropolitan not having arrived. He was apparently possessed with a great longing to reveal to him the secret of Jewry, which was tormenting him. Unfortunately, the Metropolitan never came, and thus did it come about that the secret was entrusted to Ephron, by Ephron, to no one. And it's assigned by Wassily Mikhailovich Karuskin. 
And Bergmeister continues, or concludes, this section of his booklet. The declarations of the assistant rabbi Fleischmann, of Rabbi Grunfeld, and of the former rabbi Ephron, taken together, give incontrovertible proof of the correctness of the assumption that the protocols are a genuine Jewish document. Of a particularly convincing order is the information supplied by Efron to the three Russian witnesses, Captain George, Major Smirnov, and the Administrator Karuskin. From his testimony, the following fact also becomes clear, namely that the protocols were drawn up before the Zionist Congress in Basel in 1897 and were already known to the initiated in Jewry, and moreover, that the text which we possess through the intermediary of Nihilus is a compressed extract only of an as of yet undiscovered and far more extensive secret document. It is therefore of particular importance to note that in this respect, Nihilus makes practically the same assumption on page 54 of the third edition of his book, namely, that the manuscript which had come into his hands was evidently a fragment, only of some very much more important manuscript, of which the beginning and many details have either been lost or may never even have been found. We have not yet been able to locate a similar statement in the translation of the fourth edition of Nihilus's book, which is published in English by Small and Maynard. We can only say for Bergmeister that where they have documentation of statements which Bergmeister has made, Aronov and his fellow Russian writers always support the statements which Bergmeister has given. Now, these so-called proofs from Jews proving the protocols are true, I personally would not use that as conclusive proof to demonstrate the protocols are true because this is all hearsay evidence through second or third parties of words and testimonies of Jews. So that's pretty shaky grounds for conclusive proof, I would think. Even if all of this is um, signed and attested to, the proof that the protocols are true, as they say in New England, is in the pudding. We have the protocols. We've had them for 100 years. We can look back at history and say, oh, shit, they tried to warn us and nobody got it. The Jews were able to propagandize against the protocols to silence significant voices who were trying to get the warnings out to tie up men like Henry Ford, threatening his livelihood, his business, his corporation, whatever, but whatever they had him threatened with, and, and tying him up in court over these documents 
And if Henry Ford is rather useless to fight against all of the financial might of the Jew, well, there you have it. But Americans should have woken up to the problem. The Henry Ford debacle was well-publicized. There was plenty of um, that there was plenty of opportunity for people here. There was 20 years of opportunity before World War II began for people here to listen to the whistleblowers and say, hold it, they've got something here. There's something going on here. But <laughs> we sit in slumber until we've been punished to the point where Yahweh our God shall hit the switch and white Christians will wake the hell up. What that's going to take, who knows? We've yet to see. We'll leave part six of our booklet, which is titled, The Contents Confirm the Authenticity, which is true. And we will leave it because presenting it, we will have some contention with our author, Dr. Bergmeister. However, he alone cannot be blamed for his misunderstanding of all things biblical and for his misidentification of the Jews himself. That will be where next Saturday's conversation, Yahweh willing, will be centered. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. Thank you for listening, and good night.